0: Today, we have two Bible readings. So the first one comes from Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 to 20. And you can find that on page 71 of your Bibles, or you can follow along on the screen. That's on page 71. Exodus chapter 16, 1 to 20. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in. And that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, You know you are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God. That evening, quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor, When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little, And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Our second reading comes from 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 to 19. And you can find this on page 1,195 of your church Bibles. So that's 1,195. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 19. But godliness, without content- oh, sorry. godliness with contentment is great gain. For we have brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honour and might forever. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. My name is Prash. I'm the senior minister. A very warm welcome. You're new or visiting us, and happy Mother's Day to the mums in the congregation and who are watching online. If you're joining us for the first time or perhaps after a while, we're in a series looking at the topic of our wealth and our possessions. We've done two weeks, and we're into week three. And if you remember, or if you were here last week or listened along subsequently, I left you with a challenge last week uh, to be more generous. I said, in fact, one of the ways that we um, we disempower wealth in our life, we don't find ourselves... Um, under the power of money is by learning to give more and more of it away. And uh, if you've been following along this topic, the, I guess the, the, one of the key questions that we now arrive at is how do we become more generous? If that's the case, if generosity is at the heart of um, God's kind of vision for our wealth and possessions, how do we become more generous? We're going to spend the next couple of weeks thinking about this topic. Now, talking about generosity um, is a a topic that's always fraught, but maybe it feels even more so. Some people might feel that this topic is um, inopportune, uh, pastorally insensitive, because we live in a time of kind of interesting economic um, climate. Uh, It's true, of course, that interest rates have gone up. Uh, So there's just an anxiety in our world about money. I always love these. Look at that. Even when it's going down, it looks threatening, doesn't it? Like the jagged arrow that kind of goes up and into your heart. Such as the anxiety. I mean, there's there's great, great problems in the world, and the main one is that interest rates are going up in Australia. Um, this, is, this is the climate we live in. And you might think, well, why are we talking about this now? Maybe we should be thinking about this later on down the track uh, when things have calmed down a little bit. But it's interesting because the Bible talks about money often in, and wealth in times of anxiety. It's not a time to, to hunker down and just kind of uh, focus on getting through this, this uh, moment in our history, uh, as uneventful really as it is, but maybe as anxious as you might find it, but rather to apply God's teaching and his word to our life. In the first account, we had two accounts read, the first one from Exodus 16, we come to a moment in, in Israel's history, very important moment. They've just left Egypt. They've been freed from God after 400 years of, um, of slavery, 400 years of slavery under brutal pharaohs. God has rescued them from that, and he's brought them out. And, and this is how they respond the Israelites say to them, that's to Moses and Aaron, "If only we had died in the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and, and all the food you wanted. We wanted. I mean, it's probably a, a hyperbolic response or a, a rose-coloured cl- response to what they did have food though. The reality is, in Egypt, they at least knew where they were going to live and they knew what the source of their meal was on a daily basis. But God has brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery and bondage. But they do find themselves now in the desert." Literally. And in that desert, there is a great level of uncertainty about a number of things in their life. And so they say, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly. I mean, of course, there's there's things that are wrong about that, but their circumstances are captured in this statement. Here they are, in a moment of great anxiety about the, the nature of their material possessions, their wealth, their prosperity, their daily needs. And they complain. But see how God responds. Immediately, this is verse 3 that we're looking at. The very next verse, God's response to them is this great response of grace. He says, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. And then he goes on, he says, "Uh, Everyone is to gather as much as they need. The one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. God's response to their anxiety and to their grumbling is this generous promise that he will provide for them. And so the starting point of the Bible is actually, God will provide for you. He will provide for you. And he'll provide exactly, and he'll rain it down on you. There's a sense of abundance in his provision for them. And you will not lack what you need. And yet in the story, there is a, there's a boundary to what God will provide. Because... Moses gives them a command, which God has asked him to pass on, which is that when they collect the bread in the morning and the quail at night time, they only collect what they need for the day. Only for the day. And they're not to keep any of it until the next day. They're not to keep any of it. So he says, "You, you are to collect only what you need for this day and you're meant to trust tomorrow to God's provision. You are to provide for yourself today and trust that God will provide you for you tomorrow. There's a sense in which God is saying, I'll provide for you abundantly, but you have to trust me with the future. You have to trust me with just even tomorrow, not like next year, tomorrow. There's a lesson there for the Israelites, which then gets drawn through the Bible to apply to us as well, because Jesus in the... Um, in his Sermon on the Mount, teaches his disciples to pray. And you, if you know the Lord's Prayer, which we pray regularly here on a Sunday, and it gives us a bit of a framework for the things that we can pray and how we should pray, of course, well known, one of the first things that we get to ask for is that God would give us our daily bread. And Jesus is saying, you are allowed to ask God and to expect of God that he would provide for you. So you are allowed to pray for your daily bread. You're allowed to ask him for that, despite all the the kind of high and spiritual things that Jesus opens the prayer with. Here it is in concrete terms. Please provide for me, Lord. But it's interesting, it remains daily bread. And Jesus is clearly drawing on the events of um, Israel in the wilderness and the daily provision of God. See, we are meant to be people who rely on God to provide us with our daily needs and entrust the future to him. We're meant to be content with just knowing that we have our daily things. Now, that's the challenge for us because we live in a world that's filled with discontent. I don't know how many times you update your phone. The average is now down to a year. People upgrade their phone. We just have this mindset that we always need something newer and better. I remember travelling, we went on a holiday down to the south coast once and we stayed in this lovely apartment uh, and then we went for a walk around Jarvis Bay and you just couldn't help as you were walking. I couldn't help just looking at these uh, magnificent houses and just wishing what my holiday would be like in one of them instead of my apartment. You know, we, we have that mindset, don't we? Of always, as they say, believing that the grass is greener on the other side, we, we have an inbuilt tendency towards discontent. But God is calling us in his word to be content with the daily things being met in our life and to entrust the future to him. Uh, the, the, the writer of the Proverbs, he doesn't, have, um, he doesn't have many prayers, but he has one prayer in Proverbs 30. It's a well-known prayer, and he prays this. He says, Two things I ask of you. Do them not before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying, and give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, he says. He prays that God would keep him in that daily bread zone. See, God doesn't want people to be poor. I mean, Paul says as much in 2 Corinthians, right? People are not meant to be poor. Poverty is a bad thing. God is not calling you to poverty. But neither is he calling you to excess. He wants you to live between poverty and, and material excessiveness, to be rich, to be overflowing. with So he wants us to live in this daily bread zone. And, and in the New Testament, Paul picks this up in the second reading, 1 Timothy 6, which was read for us. It's a, it's a book to Timothy. It's Paul teaching Timothy how to be a leader of God's church, but it's also got implications for us. And so he opens, he says, godliness with contentment is great. You know, we think godliness, oh, that's yes, God wants me to have a morally righteous life. And there's some truth there, but he says it's it's the morally righteous life that is combined with contentment. Right? Contentment with our stage and what God has given us. And In case we want to create our own category for what contentment is, like a higher level, I'll be content. Of course I'll be content, especially you know if I have no mortgage and I have enough savings uh, so I know what my retirement will be like. I'll be content if I live in a particular house and drive a particular car and my children have a particular education. I'll be content. But no, Paul really lowers the bar here because contentment for him is if we have food and clothing. Talking about the daily things of life here, will have be sustenance and protection, and he says that is what we should be content with. That is what you, Timothy, should be content with. That's what we should be content with. See, God is calling us to be content, but there's a purpose to this. At the start of the Timothy, actually, the Timothy passage very helpfully in the New Testament, in the NIV broken into three paragraphs, and those paragraphs are really helpful for kind of following his thinking. In the first paragraph, he's talking about contentment, the need for it. That godliness with contentment is great. The last paragraph, if you look at it, says generosity. He talks about being rich in good deeds and generous with your wealth and possessions. And Paul's point is that contentment is what leads to generosity. We asked at the start, how do we become more generous? The answer is we have to be content with the life that God has given us. We actually have to be content with a simple life in some ways, content with the simple provisions, the daily provisions of our life. And it is when we're content with those things that we open the door to generosity. If, if you want to grow in generosity, you want to grow in contentment. It's false thinking. So what does it look like to live like a, a life uh, which is content with our, our daily bread, so to speak? Well, I've got three things. These are, these are just my reflections, um, applying the principles here. But I think, I, think, I think they have strong merit. The first is you really need to work out what you really need in your life, not what you want. Right? You need to work out what you really need in your life, set that as your, kind of your benchmark and then be willing to give as much as possible of the rest of it away. I, I used to often tell this to young, young younger Christians who were leaving the full-time study and going to work. I said, you're going to get more money than you've ever had before in this moment. Your choice is to work out the kind of life you really need, not the kind of life you want, and then get in the pattern of giving the rest of it away. And to actually... Consider your spending and the use of your wealth and possessions in light of what you really need, not what you really want. And in this diagram, you see that the if you can see it on the screen that's near you, the the unbroken line is really trying to trying to reflect our understanding of what we need, and and the the broken line is perhaps how we normally think of our money. But the value of this is once we start to conceive of what we really need, not what we want, we start to see the opportunity to be generous open up to us. Now, you might look at that, and I remember when someone counseled me this when I was quite young, I found this just almost obnoxious. It was very, I just could not. I said, and I I reflect on it deep down, what I was thinking in my heart was, but that's my money but think about what we said in the first talk it's all God's actually right sometimes what we think of is we think this is this is all my money but it's actually all God's money the difference is that what's below the line is what God has provided to meet your daily needs what's above the unbroken line is what God has provided you to be generous with and so we have to really we have to Actually do the hard work of reflecting on what do we really need and then therefore, what, what can I release to be generous? So the first thing is work out what you really need. The second thing is to make choice a choice to live a simpler life. Make a choice to live a simpler life. Okay? And that's actually a daily decision and it affects many things. So let me give you some examples of what I think it might affect. For example, consider whether your child needs a private school education. I went to a private school myself. Um, I'm on the council of this private school. But I think, and so I can see the value of private schools for some children, but does your child really need a private school education? It costs a lot of money to send your children to private school. Most private schools, we're talking in excess of $30,000 a year. I remember a family in my old church. They had three kids, their first two they sent to a public school, their third they sent to a private school because they, they had a real sense that spiritually, apart from anything else, she really needed to go to a private school. That was the best thing for her. But they had no qualms with sending their first two to public schools. I recognise that each child is in a different situation, each family is in a different situation, but we really want to actually just question that. Right? The best choice is not always to spend the most money on our children's education, can you holiday cheaper? This is what I mean about like there's just these daily decisions that we make. Right? Can you holiday cheaper? Can you buy second hand rather than brand new? Can you borrow and share more of your stuff? This one's a, this one's a really good one for me because it, whenever someone comes and asks me to borrow something, when it's an item that I'm a bit too tied to, I feel very reluctant to lend it out. And so the capacity to lend is actually a sign of how much hold that thing has on your life anyway. But also, if you're willing to borrow from someone and you're willing to share, then you help yourself and others to live a simpler life. And um, lastly on this list, why redo the kitchen when all you need is a new bench top? You know what I mean? Like, Sure, the splashback is not the greatest colour in the world, but do you need to spend $25,000 on that kitchen to fix the splashback? I mean, I know what some of you are thinking. This is crazy stuff. It's all well and good. The church paid for your splashback. My my point is... You did, thank you. I love the colour, by the way. Whoever chose it, fantastic. But my point is... We are God's people and we're called to live a different way with the things that God has given us because they're actually his, not ours. And making choices to live a simpler life frees up more of the stuff God has given us for us to be generous with it. The third tip, find joy in the simple things. Now, one of those paintings is a Renoir. The other one is painted by my son. I'll leave you to decide which is which. One of them gives me considerably more joy than the other. I'll leave you to decide which. You know, actually one of the keys to dealing with our wealth and possessions world is to see the joy that simple things can actually provide us with. You don't need to believe the lie of the world that if you spend more, you'll be happier. Your holiday will not be remarkably better because you chose to fly first class instead of economy. You won't say, I went to the Grand Canyon, but let me tell you about the plane flight there. But the great lie of our world is, if you spend more, you will be happier. But that's not true. And we have to, just, we have to find joy in the simple things. It will unlock our capacity to actually live a simpler life and therefore to have more to give away and be generous with and i really want to call us to do this because this is a profound statement to your to those people who know you well who are not christians they will look at your life and ask questions about it they will look at your life this is a great way to utilize the things you have for more than even just material generosity but maybe to make a spiritual impact in the life of someone now, there's a question here, which is, what about the future? What does that mean for the future if we talk about daily bread? Right? Uh, what do we do about the future? Should we do anything about the future, or should I just kind of wake up every day and hope that God will put a meal on my table? Well, I think there is definitely in the Bible um, provision for savings. Right? So the mentality of saving is not written off by the Scriptures and Jesus saying give us this day our daily bread is not him saying therefore do not ever save because I think we see examples in the Bible and wisdom in the Bible which helps us in this I mean the story of Joseph in Genesis which we'll deal with in our next series is a story of God setting Joseph up to save a seven years worth of grain in order to provide for the Israelites during seven years of drought so there are examples where God specifically set someone up to do it and I think there's a few principles. I've, cho- I've pulled some out from, from the Bible. I haven't got all the passages, but I've got the references here for those who are taking notes, and you can take notes if you want. So here's some, prefer- here's some principles I think you can apply. First of all, storing some wealth is not out of line for the wise. Proverbs 21.20, where it kind of says... The wise person's house is, has treasures and wealth in it. So it's not out of line, if you're a wise person, biblically speaking, to have some wealth and treasure in your life. Because remember, we, we have to avoid the, the mistake of just kind of polarising our thinking about wealth. It's either just really good or really bad. The Proverbs are trying to say, actually, there's some, that's, that's not a bad thing, actually. It's not out of line with being wise. Secondly... Leaving an inheritance is a blessing or, I guess, um, uh, has the capacity to be a blessing. Uh, Another proverb there, Proverb 13. It's not necessarily a bad thing to leave an inheritance for your children. In fact, it's probably a reflection that you have been blessed in a certain way, at least, materially, that you're able to leave an inheritance. Thirdly, we shouldn't be a burden on other people. And Paul says repeatedly, one Thessalonians and then two Thessalonians, that we are to work hard and not be a burden on others. Right? And so it, I think this is where you, you can see a mandate, for example, for a retirement fund, right? When you can't work like to the same capacity or efficiency that you could beforehand, it's worthwhile actually storing some money up to ensure that you are not a burden on other people in that season of your life. So there's some value to that. Fourthly, uh, providing help to those in your household is a good thing. In fact, it's a, important, it's a necessary thing, says Paul earlier in 1 Timothy. In fact, it's evil to not provide for those who are in need. And so, if you have to set aside money to help someone in your household, that's a good thing. Fifthly, Paul actually um, admonishes the Ephesians and says, You need to work and earn so that you can be generous to others. It is good to store up your wealth in order to be generous to others. So you can see here that just from these examples in the Bible, the concept of saving your money is not necessarily a negative thing. But what's interesting, actually, if you look at all these, is there's a principle behind them. It's not just it's okay to save. Savings have a place, especially when they're geared towards serving others. right? Your savings have a place in your life, especially when they're geared towards serving others. And if you look back at these verses, you'll see that actually. Like most of these examples are actually examples where the person is encouraged or allowed or, or um, permitted to save, but not for their own self. Right? It's primarily actually as a, as a way of serving other people. So savings do have a place especially when they're geared towards the service of others. But here, there, is a still, there remains a further limitation. Savings are never a solution, never a solution to the uncertainties of life. Our, the stocking up of our wealth is never a solution to the uncertainties of life. Think back to the Exodus story. They are told not to store up their stuff. But then some of them do. They disobey Moses' command and see what Moses says happens. Some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. This is interesting. Moses, like God could just make the bread disappear, just like he'd made it up here. It could have just been that vanishing bread. You keep it overnight, you wake up, it's gone. As much as you try, it's like something out of Harry Potter or something. But no, he doesn't do that. He actually he allows it to rot, because he's making a statement to Israel: these things which you are depending on for your security tomorrow are not worth their weight. They will rot, and what's more, they will rot you as well. It's a very visceral uh, illustration for them that as soon as they start to rely on this, they are in trouble. Why? Because ultimately, Moses says, this is a test from God in verse 4. He says, this is a test. And God is testing where their faith is, where their trust is. Look at what Paul says in the Timothy passage on the same lines. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth. Interestingly, he doesn't say, not be rich. He says, not to be arrogant, nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain to put their hope in wealth. In God, We live in a world that talks about our wealth as the source of our security. This is the NRMA ad campaign that's going on at the moment. Until every home is everything proof. In other words, you need security to deal with the uncertainties of life. You need material security to deal with it. And at the heart of God's prohibition is this. When you start to use and store up your wealth as the ultimate source of your security and hope... You have shifted your hope from God to that thing, and if you are using your savings, if you are storing up your wealth and possessions to find some level of security and certainty about the future, you are shifting your trust from God to those things. You know, in the Bible, righteousness is ultimately in is ultimately an orientation to God. Do you trust Him? That's really what righteousness means. Abraham is credited as righteous. Why? Because he had his faith in God. He believed God's promises. Righteousness is not a list of tick this off, tick that off, tick this off. It is ultimately a heart orientation. Do I trust God? And so when you actually shift your trust from God to your wealth, you are moving from righteousness to unrighteousness. You are casting God aside. And that means you're not just laying your weight on things that can't sustain it. You are throwing yourself into the hands of judgment. This is why Paul says, quite quite tellingly, some have wandered from the faith. Because what it means is they've wandered from putting their whole life in God's hands to putting their life in the hands of their wealth and possessions. They have moved from a place of righteousness to unrighteousness. See, ultimately, we need to be willing to live with God through uncertainty. Right? You, can't, you cannot factor in everything. You cannot hope that by the way you deal with... In fact, this is, this is the really interesting thing. You see, you can't just use your wealth. You've got to be generous with your wealth. And you might look at someone and say, Oh, they live a simple life. They don't spend money anywhere. But they could still be at risk of this because of course they're just stockpiling it. It's become their their security blanket. And they make the same mistake as the one who just spends it all on themselves. You can be you can be you can be thrifty and still be far from God. You need to be willing to live live with God through the uncertainty of life. So how do you do that? How do you embrace the uncertainty? Well, as I said, the passage is really helpful. First paragraph is contentment, the last paragraph is generosity. The middle paragraph is the anchor point for Paul. How does he how does he stir how does he stir Timothy and the readers to to be willing to, to go with God in this life, to live the life of faith, he calls it? He has three things. I've given them three words starting with P presence, passion, power. Presence. Look what he says in verse 13. He says, in the sight of God who gives life to everything. He says, Timothy, remember, everything I'm saying, this life of faith I'm calling to you happens in the sight of God. There's nothing in your life that's out of his view. He is always aware of you. He knows what you're going through. There is no part of your struggle that He is unaware of. And he is with you. In Hebrews 13, the writer talks about contentment. See, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. But see, see why? Because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. He says, you can be content because you know God's eye is always on you. He's always on you. See, the presence of God gives us courage, is the passion. Now, I don't mean the passion is in, I'm really keen about this. I mean the passion is in the suffering of God, from, from the Latin, the suffering of God. See what he says? He says, remember that you're in God's sight, but also remember Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Paul is calling Timothy to live this life of faith in the face of uncertainty, holding on to God, and he says, but remember Jesus because he's already done it. It'll take courage for you to be generous and to live a simple life, to go against the, against the trend of this world. But look at Jesus and how courageous he has already been for you. And there's great comfort in Jesus' courage because you might feel today that, oh my gosh, this is all too hard for me. But Jesus was courageous enough for you. Right? He held to the good confession to deal with your unrighteousness. He held to it so that we can say goodbye to our past life of clinging to our stuff and cling to Christ. And finally, you see the power, the power of God. He finishes with a real flourish. It's almost like Paul just bursts into song and his writer is just kind of madly writing down this hymn of praise that builds in Paul's heart And so he says, which God will bring about his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Paul is just so captured by who Jesus is at this moment. He's just, his heart starts to sing and he just keeps up with it. And he sings because he realizes that his greatest comfort in this life is Christ. Not just because Christ went to the cross but because Christ is the king of kings. There is no accountant, there is no landlord, there is no employer, there is no bank, there is no creditor, there is no government agency who is more powerful than Christ. Christ is the king of all kings. He's the lord of all lords. He genuinely is in charge of your life. Even in the moments when you forget it, he remains in charge of it. And no one can approach him. In other words, no one can persuade him otherwise from his task and goal in this life, which is to make you more like him. And this brings such praise to God. Because praise to Paul. Because see, God, God is not asking you to live with no security. He is your security blanket. He is your security blanket. And he is capable of bearing all the burdens in your life, all of them. All of them. If we know Christ, if we know Christ as Paul knows him, we will find the capability to, to let go of the things of this world, to be generous to other people, and to find joy in that task as well. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and for his generosity towards us. His great courage in the face of great suffering. His continued presence in his life. And his sovereign power which assures us always, always you have us in your hand. Lord God, would you unlock in us a spirit of generosity as we cling less and less to the things of this world in sight of the King who rules all things. Help us to be people who who are happy, willing, able to give away much of what you've given us in order that we might bless others, in order that we might enrich their lives and point radically to the work of Jesus in our life. We pray this in his name. Amen.